into. So Jonah does something no other Old Testament prophet uh, does. He disobeys the word of the Lord. And he doesn't just disobey, he goes in the complete opposite direction. He goes west as far as he can, across, get, gets on a boat to cross the Mediterranean Sea. He's, he's run, going as far away from Nineveh as he can, and he's also trying to escape God at the same time. So God, uh, while they're out at sea, sends a mighty storm, and uh, there's a, a bunch of pagan sailors on the ship that become terrified and begin crying out to all the gods they can think of, the ones that they have, uh, to see if they can be saved. It doesn't seem to work. Meanwhile, Jonah is asleep in the boat, and the captain comes and wakes him up and urges him to call upon his God, too, to see if that would work. Now, it doesn't seem like Jonah does this. So they cast some lots to see and determine who's in the bad books of the God who's brought the storm on them. And the lots fall on Jonah. So he gets interrogated by the sailors to find out what's going on. And in the process, Jonah admits that he's a Hebrew and he worships the God who made the sea and the land. So it makes sense. But Jonah still hasn't prayed to this God Instead, he wants the sailors to throw him overboard to his death. Jonah would rather drown in the sea than accept the word of the Lord and go to Nineveh. Now, the sailors don't want to do this. They don't want Jonah's blood on their hands. So they row harder, and now they start crying out to Jonah's God before Jonah does. And the sailors... are eventually give up on this plan and do um, agree with Jonah and throw him overboard. At that point, the waves cease and they worship the Lord and they make vows to Jonah's God. Meanwhile, Jonah is swallowed up by a large fish where he spends three days and three nights. God has spared his life. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays this amazing, eloquent prayer. It's, it's, it's reminiscent of one of David's psalms. It's, it's amazing, but it's a bit of a, a phony prayer, really. Uh, I just wanted to read some of the parts of the prayer that stood out to me. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. When? When did Jonah call out <laughs> to the Lord? He did not. God was the one calling Jonah. You cast me into the deep. What? Jonah asked to be thrown into the water. I am driven away from your sight. Jonah's running away from God's sight. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So, so Jonah has not said sorry, he has felt no remorse, Yet somehow in a roundabout way, he does renew his loyalty to God. And at this moment, God tells the fish to spew him up onto the land. And that's uh, the end of Act 1. Any thoughts, fellas? Nice. Oh, well, nice reading, Andrew. Nicely done. Interesting thought about the... Because you read that prayer and you think, oh, this is great. But actually, it's 
hogwash, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's the prayer he should have. It should have described what he was doing rather than it did describe what he was doing. Yeah. And it, I guess for me, I, I wonder about the questions that Jonah was wrestling with. And the, the, the ones that occur to me are these. Why is the Lord even bothering with Nineveh? Nineveh's sort of like Berlin circa 1940. It's not a great place. It's a place of pain. It's a place of violence. It's a place of oppression. Why does the Lord even care to say, I'm going to judge these people? Why would he care about them? And I'm wondering, spoiler alert, whether... Jonah's concerned that, hey, we might not be the favourites anymore and just can't deal with that. As well as the fact that he obviously thinks that God is not God of Spain, which is strange because it's a nice place I hear. <laughs> I am. Um, at, at the risk of sounding flippant, I reckon a really good way to uncode Jonah is to look at the Simpsons. Because, um, because, and, and in this, in this I've, I've thought about the characters too, so Jonah is clearly Homer Simpson because everything he is told to do, he does the opposite. You know how Homer blows everything? That's exactly what Jonah does all the way through. And what interests me in this portion of the story is the sailors. They are, in my mind, they are like Abu. They're an outsider. They're, they're foreigners. They're not highly respected in Hebrew culture. Why are they in there? And it's fascinating. Here are these followers of other gods who they too, when things go wrong, they say, oh, God, there must be a god involved in this. They do all the right things. When they're asked to throw Jonah overboard, they don't want to do it. So they're behaving in a more godly way than him. And there's this lovely bit. So even in the disaster, which, by the way, um, Hebrew alert, is a word, ra'ah. Say that with me. Okay, hold on to that. In the disaster, they end up more faithful than Jonah, which fascinates me. I think so. I think this Homer Simpson. Okay, and if you want to know who are the Ninevites, Shelbyville, the, yeah, the, the hated other group. They actually are secretly quite like them. Yep, possibly. Okay, that's that's my little take. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. Go for it. <laughs> we, yeah, I think I think. In the, in the story, it's clear what Jonah does is, is all the wrong things, and, and it, you know, the comparison to Homer is quite good. Except I, what I found was he, he really knows his stuff. And, and in his prayer, the prayer really caught me because he, it's just so rich and theologically deep. And, I, yeah, I just wonder if, you know, there's a mirror being held up when we read this because, you know, it's a church. We, we, and I don't, I don't want to. Uh, Go for it. Yeah, we we pray some great prayers at church, and we have some great prayers, and I really appreciate uh, the the deep thinking that goes into that. But but sometimes, um, in my own prayer life, and I think in our church prayer life, we can forget the importance of examination, of examining ourselves, and confessing our sin. And and sometimes uh, I know that I forget that, and I know that sometimes in church. We don't do that all the time either, and, and it's really important. Uh, so, so I think that that's something that I'm taking away, seeing, seeing Jonah uh, just completely, un, he's got no self-awareness, 
no self-examination. And, and sometimes I think we, 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 can, we can find ourselves doing the same thing. Because it's not about knowing all the right stuff. It's about who we are in Jesus, yeah, yeah. which is quite a different thing. And, and it takes me back, you know, Dave, the comparison to David. David in Psalm 51, he showed the contrition mm. that God mm. desires, and that's what was missing from Jonah. Mm. Well, well, we'll lead into chapter 2. Well, sorry, Act 2 of our piece. Well, Jonah is belched up on the beach. After three days, I imagine he was quite white because all the stomach acid would have taken off his skin and he must have looked a right sight. And God simply restates the first call. Go to Nineveh and proclaim my judgment. And like I said before, I think this is a, this is a hard call. This is saying to a Jew, go to Berlin in 1939 and call for repentance. Well, Jonah gets there. And being the committed evangelist he is, he says, you've got 40 days or you're stuffed. And blow me down, led by their king, they do repent in sackcloth and ashes with fasting from the greatest to the least. And Jonah's biggest fear came to pass. God repented, changed his mind, and turned aside his judgment. Wise people on my left, what say you? Um, so Jonah, he, it takes three days to walk across Nineveh, and Jonah walks in for one day. So he goes a third of the way in there and he says five words. And those five words are 40 days and Nineveh overthrown. Okay, or... Stuck was the sort of... Yeah. General feeling is, you know, um, not happy. And what I really like about this story is that even in this, there's a kind of an irony. There's, there's some satire going on. And the satire is that Actually, what happens is that the people repent and there is a, an overturning. So the city actually does overturn, just not in the way that Jonah wanted it to. He wanted it to you know, burn and um, be destroyed. And, and that verse in, at the end of Jonah, chapter 3, talks about when God saw what they did and they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them, are you ready for it, the ra'ah, Ra'ah, the destruction. What's oh, a raha? Ra'ah. I thought it was a laha. Ra'ah. Did you hear laha before? Ah. Really? Because okay. I was thinking laha is all that mud that comes down from a mountain. No, no, okay, no, it's no. ra'ah. Ra'ah, okay? Sorry, maybe, maybe Taleo is messing with my head. Um, so there's this kind of lovely thing. The prophet's words still come true, but God has somehow twisted anger and judgment into mercy. And I love it when God does that. Yeah. yeah God, God is very consistent in this story. He, um, he shows mercy to the sailors. He shows mercy to Jonah. And here he shows mercy to the Ninevites. And, and we know that God is consistent throughout his scripture in this way. That he's, he's merciful. We hear that over and over again. And, and, and in that sense, God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. And yet, as you said, God changed his mind in this, in this act. 
And that's what really stuck, struck me when I was um, reading this story. Is like, how can God's character never change, but, but his mind can change? His, in a sense, his will can change. Um, how does that make sense? Um, and, and for me, I think that that speaks to God, that God's will is free too. You know, God is free to decide who he shows mercy to and who he doesn't. And he, and he is free. He can't be controlled or manipulated in that sense. And the king has a really uh, interesting question um, that he asks himself, you know, and, and his people. He, he, he asks, who knows, God may relent and change his mind. Um, the king is, is a pagan as well. He has no idea of the character of this God who is about to bring disaster on him, on his city. But he immediately gets the point. He gets the point. Mm. And, yeah. and he is willing to fall at, at his feet and worship this God in the hope that it could affect a change in mercy. And, and so in that sense, you know, that's a great thing about God. Is I, I love that he's not a robot that's pre-programmed to, to you know, um, action consequence. You know, God is free. And when I approach him in prayer, he listens. And he may even change his mind. Which is a problem for us, I think. We often, I think, bargain with God. If I ask this and do this, then you will do that. And I suppose the worst example of that is the money thing. If I give this, you'll bless me back. That's that transactional approach to the Lord, which is, no, you do not have him over a barrel. We are generous because it is good to be generous, not because there's a, a sneaky dividend going to come down the road. And I, I see this with people who've um, gone through loss. Um, I feel like I've been abandoned by God because I was good, and yet my son has died. What did I do? Well, you didn't do anything. People die. I think the king is, an, is amazing. He seems to grasp the truth that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. God cared enough to say you're gonna be you're gonna be held accountable and you're gonna be judged. That actually showed a lack of empathy apathy and what's the opposite of apathy? It's love. Mm. Mm. Somewhere underneath this God loves us. Mm. So you'll have seen there's been some images, but you know there's no Sunday school story tells the third part of Jonah. They skip it because it's a bit close to home. Because Jonah is burning with anger at God for forgiving the Ninevites. For him, it is a complete disaster that the disaster was averted. And God asks him a question. He says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah storms out of the city and sits outside to sulk and watch the city that God is going to destroy, maybe. And he rigs up a shelter, and there's this funny kind of morality play. It's hot, and it's hot on his you know, back, and he's getting sunburnt, and God causes a bush 
to grow up and ease his discomfort. And you'll never guess what the Hebrew word for that discomfort is. It's ra'ah. <laughs> okay, God causes a bush to grow up, shade him, and Jonah is comfortable. And then God causes a worm to eat the plant in a hot, dry wind. The plant dies. And God, Jonah is back to wishing he was dead. He has a, he's quite depressed, Jonah. And he says, and again, God says, is it right for you to be angry about this bush, which you didn't grow? Yep. And you, in fact, you didn't call it, grow the bug either. And then comes the stinger. God points out, you care so much about this bush that shaded your head, which you didn't make grow. I'm God. Shouldn't I care about 120,000 people in Nineveh? who many of whom can't tell left from right. And then, brief plug for the dairy farmers, also many cattle. And at this point, I think we should all hear a drum shot. Because the, the business of the cattle repenting, when the king gets Nineveh to repent, he dresses, they dress up the cattle in sackcloth as well. It'd be a massive waste of steak, <laughs> I must be frank. I'm sure they weren't thinking about their carbon footprints. Um, and... The last line, and also many cattle, probably isn't a nod to veganism. It's a, hey guys, there's humour in this. It's a punchline if ever I've seen one. For me, I see myself in the sulking nimbyism of Jonah. It is really easy to colour other people as the bad people, especially if they're not next to you. To paint them as, oh, they're bad, they're... And, and in this... That I just I find it frightening. There is there are three ra'ahs in this story: the storm that's going to kill tens of people, God wiping out Nineveh that's going to kill a hundred thousand, and Jonah who's getting a mild case of sunburn. And what I hate about this is I see myself in Jonah. Is it right for me to be angry about this when there's something much bigger and involved? And I find myself wondering now. I'm reading outside the text because this text doesn't give us an answer to this question. It finishes with a question for us. Um, I ask myself my question, well, for those others, how do I get in some kind of relationship? Because what this book seems to be saying is, all of the others, I don't have a monopoly on God, all of the others God loves, and there's something going on with them. Yeah, I, I saw that too. Jonah is all over the place in the story. You know, he begins... Um, you know, being disobedient, running away. Um, once God saves him, he's praying prayers of thanksgiving, and then he's dragging his feet around when he's preaching and then sulking. And as you said, like, there's no consistency in Jonah. If God is consistent throughout the story, Jonah is the opposite, except in one way. Jonah is stubbornly consistent in his hatred of the Ninevites. Mm. And it's Jonah's biggest flaw. And, and it's actually the, the, the big flaw of all nationalists and tribalists and those who, who expect God to stand in their corner and to ex execute justice on their enemies and those that stand against them. Um, as Christians, we're not immune from, from contracting this. And, and I think a, uh, too many Christians can succumb to this impulse to, 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 to kind of othering and, and asking and expecting God to stand on in their corner against those baddies over there. And it can come out in really ugly ways. Um, you've, you've talked about Berlin, and, um, and I think, um, you know, Nazism is probably one of those expressions, eh? 
Christian nationalism, and that's probably its extreme. But, um, you know, it can even be in things like road rage, <laughs> little, little ways as well. Is it time to hear your confession, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, okay, do, as long as he doesn't get on to rugby, okay? Because <laughs> we other in rugby. I, I want to affirm this word of my sister from Wellington before. <laughs> Top effort. What Jesus tells us is totally the opposite. Mm. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless those who curse us. And, and that's, I think, the hardest thing to do, especially if, if we are... You know, victims, and 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 if there's serious injustice against us to to love in that situation, very very difficult. But that is the challenge I think that the gospel uh, gives us. Really, there's a um, I, I heard a Bible teacher arguing that um, the heart of the the Bible is the gospels. The heart of the Gospels are the parables of Jesus, and the heart of the parable, parables of Jesus is the um, story of the prodigal son. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And often we, we don't necessarily say it, but we see the church as being the, the older brother's club, and we're the older brother's. And we don't necessarily want to share the blessings and the goodness of God. I had a, um, when I was a much younger man in the last millennia, I was in a uh, cell group. And there was a, we were probably all about, I don't know, 22, 23. And there was a young woman there and we were doing this study on grace. And I remember the moment she grasped what grace was. And she was horrified. She was appalled. And her comment was, I've been doing children's church for years. Just years. I've been at this church faithfully all that time, and so have my family. And you're telling me that someone could wander in at the end of their life, say sorry, and they'll be fine. Yes, yes, that is what we're telling you. She couldn't believe it. And I think a little bit like Jonah, sometimes we want others to suffer to justify our choices and to justify our favoritism to God. But the problem that my friend had was what her God was like. Her God was a God of works righteousness, not the God of grace and mercy and unmerited salvation. From which it's probably worth reminding us that some of the biblical scholars who look at Jonah notice that Jesus is kind of an anti-Jonah. That is, he goes out to save. He ends up in the belly of a beast. He, and he's risen at the end. It's a retelling that twists it on its head. Does that make Jonah the Antichrist? I, 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 quite, I quite like someone who once said, um, whenever someone is doing the opposite of what Christ did, at that moment they are being anti-Christ, which I think is quite a nice line, but a bit awful because then I can apply it to me. Can I shift uncomfortably? We have wondered about you at times, Cole. <laughs> yeah, you're so not alone. <laughs> hey, on that ground, perhaps we should pray. 
How about um, we pause? As a congregation, this book reflects on us, God, on our biases, on the things, people we love and the people we are suspicious of, on the barriers we put around ourselves and our agendas. And here we are, God, we are who we are, and you are more. And your spirit flows past our petty walls and fences and calls us to show love to other, wraps us in your arms and calls us towards you. We know some of who we are and we know who we would long to be. Lead us on that journey. Amen. We hadn't figured out how to finish that, have we? I think our men will count. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, Could we have the team? We're going to sing Blessed Be Your Name. And then we uh, have a practice here of um, closing with a benediction, which we say to each other. So that's all slightly uncomfortable. You look at each other and go, oh, am I allowed to look at someone else in church? The theory is yes. The practice is sometimes a little more awkward, but lean into the awk.